So today we uh, start a new series called The Good, the Bad, and the Beautiful. Many of you know of the old Clint Eastwood Western by a similar name, but that's where the similarity ends. <laughs> We're going to be learning from three biblical leaders of Israel whose names will remain a mystery until we get to them. But rest assured that one of them was good, one of them was bad, and one of them was beautiful. We'll start with a good one. Perhaps even the best king over Judah during the time of the divided kingdom in Israel, and this king's name is Hezekiah. Most of you will remember about a year ago during the Malachi series when we were walking through an outline of Old Testament history together. Each week we were using hand signals and you were filling in some blanks verbally and several of you told me it was helpful. So today as we launch into another series from the Old Testament, I'd like to start doing that again, that little exercise, uh, at least for a few weeks. Uh, eventually through repetition, things will start to stick and that's the whole idea. We ought not be ignorant of our own spiritual heritage. Amen? Now, I want to mention again that this walk through the Old Testament is something I adapted from a youth leader a couple decades ago. Um, found this, and, and I've been using it and made, making it different efforts since. But I want to give credit. His name is Rod Martin. And uh, so, so I, I, I've changed it a lot, but I always try to let you know when something's not original to me. So, as before, try to fill in the blanks with me when I pause, and I promise you'll do better next week or the week after that. The foundational book of the Bible is Genesis, so let's start by walking through the first 12 chapters. I'll give you the hand signal first to help you say the words. You can do both if you can. We'll get there eventually. Here we go. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 tell us about creation. Chapter 3, the temptation, okay, like the serpent, and fall of Adam and Eve. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel, okay? That's, that's your symbol for the first murder, sadly, Cain and Abel. Chapter 5, anyone? Genealogies. can be a little boring, right? Chapter 6, 7, and 8, Noah and the... Oh, come on. We got that one, right? Noah and the flood. Chapter 10, again, genealogies. Chapter 11, the tower of Babel. Chapter 12, the call, some people remember, of Abraham. One day God saw the faith of Abraham and spoke to him. God said, go into a land that I will show you. And he and his family went up around the tough one, Fertile Crescent. And they came up to a town called Haran, which was barren. So Abraham wondered. Some of you got that one. I love that one. So Abraham wondered, what am I doing here? But it wasn't time for him to get to where God was leading him yet. So God had him wait 30 years until Abraham's father, Terah, died. Finally, they moved into the promised land. But Abraham and his wife, Sarah, had a problem because 30 more years had passed and they still hadn't had any children. And now they were getting very old. Finally, though, God kept his promise and gave his son to Abraham and Sarah, whom they named. When I pause, that's even if there's not a symbol, you can try to fill in the blank. They named Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son. 
Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was not chosen, but Jacob was chosen by God. Later, Jacob was renamed Israel. Very good. So Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, had how many sons? Ten fingers, two earlobes, twelve sons. The second youngest son's name was Joseph. Joseph seemed to have a special relationship with God and with his father, so the other sons didn't like him very much. His brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into bondage, and sent him down to Egypt for another 30 years, or sent him down to Egypt where he lived for 30 years. Joseph eventually became Pharaoh's powerful right-hand man. After 30 years, there was a famine in the land, and Joseph's whole family moved down to Egypt for another 30 years where they lived in peace and prosperity. After that, Pharaoh died, and then Joseph died. So there was a new Pharaoh who didn't like Joseph's family much. They put him in bondage uh, and, uh, for 400 years. Okay. We missed the symbol, bondage. Okay. After 400 years, the Egyptians had become really oppressive, and the people began to cry out, saying, anybody remember that one? God, get us out of this mess. Okay? I'll just try that again. After 400 years, the Egyptians had become really oppressive, and the people began to cry out, saying, God, get us out of this mess. So God called a man named Moses and told him, and told him to go tell Pharaoh to... Let my people go. Everybody gets that one. Moses did what God asked, but Pharaoh said, no go. No go. So God began to show us power, and through Moses, he unleashed how many plagues? Ten plagues on the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh couldn't take anymore. And the last time Moses said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, okay. So Moses gathered the people and led them through the... Red Sea, and up to Mount Sinai, where God gave them the Ten Commandments. Let's try those again, okay? Um, Moses, what was this? Gathered the people and led them through the Red Sea and up to Mount Sinai, where God gave them the Ten Commandments. Moses later sent how many spies? Twelve spies, who were also family leaders into the land that God had promised, to see what enemies they might have to face. This was the same land that God had given to Abraham before his descendants moved down to Egypt to escape the famine. Ten leaders came back and said, no go. But two leaders said, let's go. Unfortunately, the people listened to the ten leaders and as a group they said, no go. So God said, because you have no faith and you've disobeyed me, you are going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everyone 20 and over dies. So that's what happened. When the time was up, Moses brought them into a place, up to a place called Mount... You can't do that when sitting down very well, but without hurting somebody in front of you, but you get it, right? Knee, elbow, Nebo. Mount Nebo. You'll never forget that now. Where Moses died and a new leader was selected, we'll call him General Joshua. He just happened to be one of those original two leaders who had said, let's go. Joshua led the people through, kind of like the Red Sea, through the Jordan River, and they divided up the promised land between the 12 tribes. Let's try that one again. Joshua led the people through the Jordan River, and they divided up the promised land between the 12 tribes. After Joshua died, there were seven social, economic, and spiritual ups and downs. This happened under the leadership of the judges. 
for a period of 400 years. But after 400 years, the people said, forget the judges. God, give us a king. The first king was Saul. The second king was David. And the third king was Solomon. They all ruled a united kingdom. After Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was called, anyone? This is hard. Israel. And the southern kingdom was called Judah. But keep in mind that all of it together was sometimes also referred to as Israel. The capital of the northern kingdom was, anybody want to impress me? Samaria. And the capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. There were how many tribes in the north? Ten. And how many tribes in the south? Two. After Solomon, there were 19 consecutive kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and there were 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Of those kings, there were how many good kings in the north? Zero. And there were eight good kings in the south. In 722 BC, King Shalmaneser V came down from Assyria and defeated the northern kingdom Israel. He took the 10 tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. Let's try those three. He took the 10 tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. More than 100 years later, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, say that three times fast, from Babylon came down to Judah, conquered them, and took many of the people back to Babylon for 70 years. 70 years later, Babylon had been conquered by the Persians, and the Persian king sent three guys back to help reestablish Judah. Their names were Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Let's say those together. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They brought about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem where they rebuilt the temple, reestablished corporate worship, and rebuilt the wall. Let's try those three things. They rebuilt the temple, uh, temple, uh, reestablished corporate worship, and rebuilt the wall. Okay, that was, I should have told you, the, the rebuilt the temple was mostly Zerubbabel, they reestablished corporate worship, mostly Ezra, and rebuilt the wall, mostly Nehemiah. The last Old Testament prophet to speak was Malachi, and he shared his word from the Lord during the time of Nehemiah after the wall had been rebuilt. After that, there were 400 years of silence from God until John the Baptist burst onto the scene prophesying about Jesus Christ, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we just reviewed the entire Old Testament. Good job. Well done. We're going to get better and better at that. Now, in this series, we are going to talk about some lesser-known spiritual leaders who served during the time of the divided kingdom after Israel in the north split off from Judah in the south. The first person we will learn from was a very good king, and again, his name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah ruled Judah from the capital city of Jerusalem. He was the 13th of the 20 kings who ruled in Judah, and he was one of those eight kings referred to as good, which of course is relative. Meanwhile, in the northern kingdom of Israel, there had been 19 bad kings in a row, and the people had become exceedingly wicked. God had reached the limit of his patience. It was, in fact, during the early reign of Hezekiah in the south when King Shalmaneser of Assyria conquered the north and took the ten tribes captive. Let's read about this period in the history of our spiritual ancestors from the book of 2 Kings chapter 18. The Bible says, Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. 
He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. Now, if we were to read the whole story of Hezekiah today, you would see that when the Bible says he prospered, it doesn't simply mean that he got rich. What this really means is that he was successful. He did well. He was effective. He was fruitful. This prosperous process we will discuss is not mostly about money. I do want to clearly state that the so-called prosperity gospel, which is a part of what has been referred to as the word faith movement, including such things as health and wealth doctrine, is both dangerous and wrong. These are false teachings, which as usual are hyperbolic and twisted versions of the truth. That said, Please also understand that it would be equally wrong to fail to teach the untwisted truth, which is that when we do things God's way, we can count on His presence and His abundant blessing. The false version comes in when we try to define God's blessing as a guarantee that you will get exactly what you want when you want it. As usual, the false teaching is found in that place where we say more than what God has said. At any rate, for today, what we will see is a clear path toward God-given prosperity, meaning a life marked by godly success. Now, just think for a minute about Hezekiah's epitaph here. If someone were to write about your life, what do you think they would say about you? If they only had a few lines to sum up your identity, would they say something like this? Sub in your name for Hezekiah's name. Would someone say Bob or Sally did what was right in the Lord's sight, and because of this, he or she was prosperous in everything? Wouldn't you like this to be said of you? Me too. So let's learn from the inspired Word of God, and let's discern from the life of this amazing king named Hezekiah, his secret to success. What was Hezekiah's prosperous process. I see four steps. We'll cover only the first two today. And here's the first one. Step one, remove the junk. Do you have junk in your life? Where did it come from? Could be from many places, but one common place is what the Bible refers to as the sins of the fathers. In particular, in our time, we need mercy and help from God in order to break the cycles of sin and the natural passing down of poor fathering which is plaguing our society. With that in mind, take note that Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, had been one of the worst kings of Judah. The Bible says he was vile and evil, and that he worshipped some of the so-called gods of the pagan nations who were in the land before God's chosen people settled there. Ahaz was not a good king. Thankfully, Hezekiah proved that family cycles of sin and poor parenting can be broken. Maybe that's your history. Or maybe you've generated your own problems, or both. But either way, 
Once you've been regenerated through salvation by grace through faith in Christ, one of your most important first steps of discipleship will be removing the junk that is in your life. Whether it was passed down like it was for Hezekiah, or whether you actually generated your own junk, or both, nothing is going to go right in your life until you get rid of it. What makes Hezekiah stand out? among the 20 kings of Judah. And what makes him stand out, head and shoulders, even above the other seven good kings, is the simple fact that he actually removed all the junk. Hezekiah removed the pagan shrines that were places to worship idols. He smashed the sacred pillars where people offered sacrifices to false gods. He knocked down the Asherah poles where sexually immoral acts were performed to worship a popular female deity. And most amazingly, he broke up a certain bronze serpent, which I'll explain later. Please understand that the previous good kings, who would otherwise follow the Lord, had not gone so far as to remove all of these sinful things from the land. Each of them had left enough of the stuff in place so that these sins could continue among the people. Invariably, each good king to come along would get rid of some of the junk and make a few improvements. But out of all the other kings, only Hezekiah actually finished the job. In fact, as you read through the book of the books of the kings, you will continue to run across this phrase. However, he did not remove this or that evil thing. It's a formula throughout the biblical record used to place a caveat on each of the good kings of Judah. The other seven good kings did not come down hard enough on the popular yet sinful culture of the people who were supposed to be God's holy nation. Now, keep in mind, I hope you heard that. He didn't come down hard enough on what would be similar today to the church. Didn't, they didn't come down hard enough on the people of God, not the, uh, whoever those other people were that were not supposed to necessarily be doing everything that God had said, right? Or didn't know better, perhaps. They didn't come down hard enough on the people who were supposed to be God's holy nation. I guess they just couldn't bring themselves to ask for radical obedience. They made concessions. They looked the other way. Not on, not on everything, but on some things. I'll give you one of several examples. This verse refers to King Jehoshaphat, who was a few kings earlier than Hezekiah. The Bible says Jehoshaphat was a good king, following the example of his father, Asa. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. During his reign, however, he failed to remove all of the pagan shrines, and the people still offered sacrifices and burned incense there. Do you see it? However, he failed to remove what God wanted removed. I wonder how many of us today have some howevers. What would God write about us right now? Mark was a relatively good follower of Jesus. However, he failed to remove blank from his life. So-and-so was a godly woman. However, she failed to remove blank from her life. Hezekiah, on the other hand, was no halfway kind of person. I think that's a big part of why he was prosperous or successful in God's kind of way. And isn't that exactly 
what our text is trying to tell us. What is the clear message of this text? Why did Hezekiah prosper? Now, maybe it seems obvious to us that any godly leader should remove all of these detestable idols and places of false worship, but that's because these are not the idols we still worship today. We have our own set. For us to understand how revolutionary these actions were, we'd have to talk about something like television or the internet or our smartphones or maybe our guns. And no, I haven't received a word from the Lord that any of those specific things are necessarily idols for you. And regardless, I am not a king. Jesus is your king. I don't have the authority to tear down your idols. Only you can do that with his help. So what I'm saying is this. What if God makes it clear that your smartphone or your TV or your computer or your gaming system or whatever else is getting in the way of your relationship with Him. What if you had to stop scrolling to follow Jesus? Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's scary. It's addictive. I've seen it. For others of you, what if you had to get rid of all your guns? And to make it even more real, what if some zealous godly leader, say your pastor or even a strong Christian friend or mentor who cares about you, what if such a person came into your home and started smashing these things into pieces for your own sake? Okay, that's how big this was in that culture. And that's why no other king had done it. But Hezekiah did all these things that nobody else had done. And our text says he also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan. Now, at first glance, I'm not sure we catch the full significance of this. Understand that this bronze statue was over 700 years old. This had been a cherished artifact representing God's salvation for seven centuries. Friends, I know churches full of people who don't want to let go of their hymnals from 1985. They're so attached to them. Uh, I know churches that are dying because they wouldn't leave an old building behind. After all, they remembered God doing great stuff there back in the day when God did great stuff. Well, for 700 years, God's people had held on to this thing that was tied to a huge miracle where God had saved them through faith 700 years. To put that in perspective, remember the United States of America isn't even half that old. Let's try a crazy hypothetical. What if Christians today started to say that the Declaration of Independence was more important than the Bible, thereby placing a human thing above a divine thing, which is idolatry. And let's say that we suddenly had a particularly godly president, and he, I know, hard to believe, but I just, you know, it's hypothetical, a godly president, and he decided to destroy our original copy of the Declaration of Independence as a part of calling Christians back to the Bible. The president stands up on national television, breaks through the glass case at the National Archives, burns to ash that most cherished document of American history, all out of zeal, for God. And I know that's really a stretch, all right? But hypothetically, this still wouldn't even come close to what Hezekiah did. 
There's a reason no king before him had done this. And that's why it proves that Hezekiah was sold out to God like nobody else had been. God actually said that Hezekiah was the greatest king ever. He did things nobody else did. He removed junk nobody else would remove. Back to the story. 700 years before Hezekiah, Moses and the people were wandering in the desert. This was during those 40 years before they got to go into the promised land with General Joshua. And God sent poisonous snakes to punish them for their lack of faith, and many of them died. But the people who survived the first wave of deaths repented from their sin and asked Moses to pray, which he did, and God made a way for them to be healed if they were bitten by the snakes. God's way of salvation for these folks was for Moses to make a bronze snake, to put it on a pole, and God said that if the people would simply lift up their eyes to this emblem, they would be healed. In other words, instead of just zapping people with salvation, God asked for a simple act of faith and obedience, and He healed the people who chose to do it. Sound familiar at all? It should. This was one of the many Old Testament foreshadowings of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I would say that is precisely why it worked. Because the real power rested in the cross to come later. By the way, time works a lot differently for God than it does for us. Most people know John 3.16. But do you know the two verses before that? Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up on a pole, so that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. See, the bronze snake had been a good thing for the people of Israel, a reminder that, that, that God does stuff, uh, that God saves, a physical piece of evidence reminding that God had acted in miraculous ways in the past. This icon had, had served as a tool to lead the people to remember to worship only God. But now, the symbol had subtly and gradually become the object of worship itself. The bronze snake had become an idol thought to have its own power, and they'd even given, an, given it a name, Nahushtan. By the way, doesn't that just, that just sound evil? I don't know. Can you imagine if God had preserved the actual cross upon which Jesus died? I have a feeling we would have the same problem they were having by the way, when I sing about or think about the cross, I'm thinking and singing, uh, singing about the sacrifice and the cost and the substitutionary death of my Savior, not the actual wood or the substance or even the shape of the thing, as if it had special power in itself. The cross is only powerful in that the sacrifice of Christ is powerful. For the record, if you think a church has to have a cross on the wall to be a church, you may want to dial back a few years to the first century church. And ask yourself if they likely had a Roman torture device hanging on the wall. Now, for the record, I kind of like a cross on the wall. It's helpful to me because I grew up with it and it helps me think about Jesus. I'm not saying a cross on the wall is a bad thing. But recently, someone chose not to come to our church partly because we don't have a cross on the wall. And I'm simply saying that doesn't sit right with me. For, for similar reasons to what happened in this story we are studying today. Our text says that Hezekiah literally ground this 700-year-old idol into dust so that they would have nothing left to worship. 
There was nothing left to look at or to hold. Nothing left to cherish. He ground this ancient artifact into powder and threw it into the wind because what had once been good had become junk that kept the people from being fully devoted to God. I asked a moment ago, what if we still had the actual cross of Christ? And what if some leader ground it to dust, which is probably exactly what should be done with it, if we still had it? I'm guessing this was not the most popular leadership decision Hezekiah ever made. I'm guessing people might have thought his actions were a little extreme. But that is what made Hezekiah someone worth writing about and reading about. When it came to removing the junk, Hezekiah did not stop halfway. The scripture says some very special things about Hezekiah. I look back at our text where it says he pleased the Lord. We're told that Hezekiah was a true son of David, someone the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. And then in verse 5, it actually says, there was never another king like him in the land of Judah, either before or after his time. Now, you just think about that. We're talking about some pretty good kings who did some pretty amazing stuff. This would include kings like David and Solomon who wrote inspired scripture. God says Hezekiah was not just one of the good kings, but in some ways he was the best king ever. Now, what made Hezekiah stand out? As a follower of God with so much distinction, taking this passage at face value, we would have to conclude that more than any other thing, truly, what made Hezekiah special was not so much what he did as what he removed. Hezekiah stood out because he removed the junk. What about you? Got junk? Stop rationalizing. Stop marginalizing. Stop thinking it's okay as long as you're careful, as long as your heart is right, whatever else you're telling yourself. If it's even close to an idol, follow the example of Hezekiah. Remove it. Smash it. Break it. Burn it. Flush it. Block it in a way that it can't be unblocked. Get away from it. Get it out of your life permanently. That's step one in Hezekiah's prosperous process. You heard that right. This is clearly presented in Scripture as part of the reason God made Hezekiah prosperous. Feel free to read the passage for yourself. You won't miss it. Get rid of the junk if you want God's kind of prosperity in your life. Let's look at step two. Trust in the Lord. Verse 5 says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. I don't know about you, but when I'm in prayer, God often speaks to my heart with very short sentences. Often it's just one or two words. And if there's one word that I have been sure God was wanting to convey to me on numerous occasions, it is the word trust. If you were to look through the pages of one of my Bibles where I make notes or to look through many of the books that I've read, you would find written in several places the words trust God or trust Jesus are there any other doers out there? It's okay. Uh, any other fixers, any troubleshooters or problem solvers? Are there any other achievers? Anyone out there who drives themselves crazy wondering what should have been done differently, what could have been done better, and especially what needs to be done to make things the way you want them to be right now? Yeah, me too. But God is slowly changing me in that regard, and it has not been an easy process because it basically involves God convincing me that I can't do it right, that I just don't have the ability or the strength or the power to get things in line, to go the way I want it to go. 
Not a fun lesson. Trust and control are mutually exclusive. Remember that, he said to himself. What does it mean to trust in the Lord, the God of Israel? Let me start by talking about what it doesn't mean. Trusting in the Lord is not believing God will do whatever you want Him to do. In fact, that's not trusting at all. Rather, that's trying to control God, which is always a mistake. So when it gets right down to it, most of us are disappointed with God. Let's just get it out on the table. Don't try to deny it. We're disappointed with God one way or another because at one time or many times we ask Him to do something and maybe we even believe that He was going to do it and then He didn't do it or He didn't do it uh, the way we wanted Him to or the time we thought He should. Some have experienced this enough times until deep down they don't really believe God ever does really much of anything. Maybe you believe He's there but you don't really believe He's going to act. You're deeply disappointed with God. And sometimes you wonder if He really even hears you. What's the point of praying anyway? But this cycle of disappointment is of your own making, my friend. You have been trusting in things that aren't trustworthy, like your own desires or wishes. That kind of trust always leads to disappointment. Around five centuries before King Hezekiah, the third king of the United Kingdom of Israel was King Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. And Solomon said this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will direct your paths. But we act like the Bible says something more like this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and assume that you're on the right path. Ask God to twist things around to the way you want them to be and expect Him to do whatever you want. Could we have it any more wrong? We go wrong when we stop trusting God with whatever His plan is and start expecting Him to make our will His own. Now, there's nothing wrong with trying to walk where you believe God is leading in faith, trusting that He will go with you. I'm in the middle of that right about now. Sometimes you actually have to make a decision and start moving, start going down a path even when you're not 100% sure if it's the right one. Sometimes you start walking by faith in one direction only to be swept off your feet and put someplace you never intended to go. As Solomon also said, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And yet notice this proverb does not say never to make plans. It does not say never start going. No, and it's not that you never trust God to go with you as you venture down a specific path where you think He is leading. But when things don't go the way you thought they would, that's when you find out if your trust is really in God or if your trust is actually in a specific plan or certain circumstances, or a wish list. If your trust is really in God, a change of plans or surprising steps won't change how you feel about Him. By the way, as a spiritual leader, it is very helpful when the people you are trying to lead understand this. As Tolkien's famous character Gandalf said, even the very wise cannot see all ends. What then of those of us who may be only a little bit wise? Sometimes. 
We're going to see next time that life was not all coffee and chocolate, even for the prosperous King Hezekiah. The Lord was with him, and he prospered, but at times life got really confusing and difficult even for him. Things went wrong. Hezekiah and his people faced impending genocide at one point. Later he got very sick and almost died. Times got tough, but the Bible records that ultimately Hezekiah trusted in God through it all. He became known for his trust in the Lord, the God of Israel. What about you? Are you trusting in God? Are you trusting that he will straighten out your kids or your spouse? Are you trusting in God? Are you trusting that you'll get that promotion? Are you trusting in God? Are you trusting in your comfort zone? Are you trusting in God? Are you trusting that He'll give you what you want? See, it doesn't even matter if what you want is a good thing or not. Oh, that's a good thing. It's a godly thing. It's a biblical thing to want that. That doesn't matter because God doesn't want you to trust that He will do what you want. Period. No, He just wants you to trust Him. God wants you to trust that He loves you and that ultimately He has good things planned for you, that He's with you that He's going to help you, maybe not in the way you thought, but He's going to help you nonetheless. This is the kind of trust we can see in the life of Hezekiah, and it's part of why he prospered in life. I love what the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah, who in fact was a prophet during the time of King Hezekiah and during the time of three kings before him, Isaiah spoke for God when he said, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Those are the kinds of things we can expect from God, my friends. The reasons we can trust Him, because He is with us. He is our God. He will strengthen us. He will help us. He will uphold us. We cannot trust in uncertain circumstances to come true, but we can trust in the God who loves us no matter what happens. One early man of faith, Job, said, even if God kills me, still I will trust in Him. Now that's trust. Job understood that God is bigger than even death. And if God is bigger than death, He's bigger than anything we face in life. This is also the kind of trust Jesus demonstrated on the cross when He said, into your hands I commend my spirits. Are you really trusting in God? Or are you trusting that He will do what you want Him to do? Our text says Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, not in what he would specifically do, but in him. There are different Hebrew names for God in Scripture. Many times certain ideas and meanings get lost in translation because we just get the word Lord or God, where originally there were other nuances of meaning. Here the word Lord is translated from the Hebrew word Yahweh. This is the word God used when Moses asked who he should say sent him. God said, tell them Yahweh sent you, and it, uh, this literally means the I am sent you. This conveys the ever-present eternal nature of God. Yahweh also hints at God's awareness in our times of trouble. He's there. The I am. He knows all about it. He knows. He's there with you. He's always there. That's what Lord means here. Our text has Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God 
of Israel. The Hebrew word for God used here is Elohim. One dictionary put it this way. Elohim, this title signified a God of the highest rank who was something of a father figure. A God who was like a good father. Elohim. Wow. This Yahweh Elohim who Hezekiah trusted is further described as the God of Israel. Israel was the new name given to Jacob after he wrestled with a man from God all night long and received three things, a blessing, uh, a new name, and a disjointed hip. His new name meant one who wrestles with God. After wrestling with God, Israel both trusted God and was blessed by God. Hezekiah trusted in Yahweh, his father God, the one who existed before everything else, the God who is and who was and who always will be the God who called out a man named Israel who had worshipped him hundreds of years earlier and the God of Isaac before him and Abraham before him and Noah before him and Adam before him and the angels before him. This is the God in whom our spiritual ancestors trusted. And as their descendants by faith, we can trust in this God too. The name of our trustworthy God is Yahweh, Elohim of Israel. Next week, we'll pull out two more steps that we can see led to a prosperous life for Hezekiah. But as I close, I want you to know how real this is. Listen, friend, the Bible is true. You can count on the principles of Scripture. This is real. I truly believe the reason the Lord was with Hezekiah and the reason that he prospered was far from random, but was due to the real things this man did that were different than the average person. Read the whole story this week. Just read it. It's super clear that the Lord was with Hezekiah and he prospered because he really did get the junk out and he really did trust in God. Church family, I am no Hezekiah. But I want to tell you that I have seen the truth of these principles in my own life. I hesitate to put myself on display. I try not to do it, perhaps to a fault. But for some reason this week, I feel like God wants me to give you a modern day example. Someone who stands in front of you every Sunday. I am not a king like Hezekiah, but I am the leading spiritual overseer of this church. Astoundingly, you have allowed me to lead in this way. And I want to tell you that I have lived a prosperous life. God has been with me, and I have been blessed beyond words. It's uncomfortable for me to tell you this, but I absolutely believe the Lord has been with me, and the Lord has caused me to prosper. How can I not tell you this? My life is a testimony to the truth of this sermon. This church has grown and seen spiritual fruit in a way that absolutely stands out. I don't know of another church plant in the Northwest that has experienced what we have experienced in these days. We have seen so many new disciples, so many grow stronger. We have absolutely been blessed financially off the charts. Now listen, God could take any of this away at any time for any reason. He is God. That changes nothing. But what I'm trying to say is that I really have tried to keep the junk out of my life possibly more than the average person, and I have always tried to keep my trust in God, possibly more than the average person. I am trying to tell you that the principles we're talking about today are real. Please don't ignore this message. I want to see lives actually transformed 
by the power of truth from the Word of God. And through the Holy Spirit, He uses it to change us. Please don't have some theological or philosophical reason to reject these principles today. God put this in His Word for a reason. It's real. This is so real that I know I have experienced less prosperity when I have not practiced these principles wholeheartedly. Maybe you don't want to hear that. Well, I'm sorry. It's true. And again, I'm not just talking about money. There have absolutely been times when I have not removed all of the junk. And when that has been the case, I promise you that I have seen the fruitfulness of my life and my ministry decrease. When there's more junk, there's less of God's prosperity in my life. I've watched it happen throughout my 52 years. I've also seen less prosperity when I've had less trust in God. This has proven true in everything from the spiritual fruit of our church, things like baptisms, changed lives, to personal financial blessings, or the lack thereof, hard times. Friends, here's my point. If you don't think your choices have consequences, start keeping track. I assure you, God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Notice it doesn't just say you will reap what you sow. God is in there. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. There were reasons God was pleased with Hezekiah. There were reasons the Lord was with him in the kind of way that resulted in success. Two of those reasons are that he got the junk out of his life and he put his trust in the Lord. Maybe it's dangerous to tell you that God will bless you and even prosper you if you do things His way. Then again, maybe it's dangerous not to tell you. I do you no favors by failing to proclaim this principle for fear of being misunderstood. Instead, I will tell you the truth that there is a godly process to God's kind of prosperity. We see it throughout the Bible, and I assure you, it is real. Now, what about the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus died on a cross so you could be forgiven of your sins and have a close relationship with God as Father. The gospel is the hope of new life, and you receive it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I've been preaching today mostly to those who have already received that. I can assure you that getting every last bit of junk out of your life is going to be hard enough with Jesus. Trusting in God wholeheartedly is going to be hard enough after the Holy Spirit comes into your life upon your faith in Christ. Just like the Israelites in the desert, you can't be healed of sin until you look up to the salvation of God, which is Christ on the cross. So if you don't have this relationship with God through Christ, the bottom line is that you have no chance to receive this kind of prosperous blessing from God that we are talking about because you'll have no chance to actually implement these steps in the process. You won't get the junk out and you won't trust in the Lord with all your heart unless you're first born again by faith in Christ. You only have a chance to experience the principles we learned about today after you receive salvation and forgiveness from God, which happens the moment you put your faith in Jesus right there in your heart. Maybe someone today is ready to do this. I hope so. Let's spend a moment in prayer. Father, your word is true. Your word is truth. And you 
teach us things that can change our lives if we will apply it. So today I pray for two different groups of people. I pray for those who already know you and can apply these readily. They know they need to get the junk out. They know they need to trust in you in a different kind of way. But for those, God, who are here who are not your people, they have not surrendered and put their faith and hope in Jesus alone to save them from their sin. They've not been forgiven. May today be the day of salvation. It's not a formulaic prayer. Um, It's not some kind of ritual. But God, is there someone here today who you are drawing by your Spirit who would simply come out of that grave? Just take a step with your help to turn to you, to repent from self-selfishness, sin, all of it, leave it behind, turn to Jesus, follow you today, become one of yours by faith. You do the work. Will someone say yes today? Will someone look up at something as simple as the snake on a pole, only now it's Christ on a cross? Will someone just look up with hope and cry out, save me? That could be you today. I pray that it is. God, thank you for saving so many of us in this room and we can look back to that moment. God, revive us though. We don't have a king like Hezekiah to come and do it for us. You are our king. Let us respond to your word. Remove the junk. Put our trust in you instead of just what you can do for us and turn away from our sin. That is what revival means. And that is what we pray for. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.